Hi, this is Josh. You're listening to The Invitation. And in this episode, we're continuing with Father Martin Laird's A Sunlit Absence, Silence, Awareness, and Contemplation, Chapter 5. I'd like to thank those of you who have been listening throughout the summer for your patience as I get back to this discipline. I will try to edit out the hammering that is happening outside my studio space here. I'm recalling the episode earlier where Father Laird was talking about a retreatant on that silent retreat and that every day, I think sometime around in the mid-afternoon when a chainsaw would start up. The invitation is a practice of spiritual direction invigorated by the movements of the Holy Spirit in a prison. Practically what that means is I learn more and more about who God is in the prison. And then the practice outside of the prison is creating time and space for God with you through the podcast, through spiritual direction, through retreats. And we attend to creating time and space for God in the way that we can in the context of what we've been given each day. And over the last uh, month or so, that has meant getting my children back into school and recruiting and launching the School of Prayer for this fall. And today it means listening to some construction next door. And if you have not caught on yet, the invitation is just me. It's just Josh Banner. I do have several collaborators that serve alongside me in various ways, but in terms of the marketing department and the billing department and the admissions department for gathering students, the production team for recording and producing the audio and then the videos and then the messaging, communications, all of these things are things that I do for better or worse. And one gift of COVID-19 and quarantine is a sense that I can and should be more self-disclosive, to be more honest about who I am and how I am bringing this content to you. Throughout my early life, through high school, college, grad school, I had this love-hate relationship with my own intensity, my depth. Um, As a worship leader, I wanted so much to be the guy who could do more Thanksgiving and celebration, the worship leader who could draw people in enthusiastically. But over the years, I realized I do like A minor. I like Teze. I like slower and more calm worship practices. But it was really the discovery that not only am I a spiritual director, but I've always been a spiritual director that in the classroom, in the recording studio, on the worship team, my interest has always been creating time and space for God. 
And in coming to terms with that, I began to laugh. Of course, I'm intense. Of course, I'm, I'm deep. I'm, I'm a spiritual director. And so ironically, since I have lived into this vocational discernment in the last now almost 10 years, I can say that I've used the word fun more regularly in the last season of my life than I have, than I ever did as a kid or as a high school student or college student. Uh, my definition of fun is group spiritual direction at E.C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon. My idea of fun is the Ignatian spiritual exercises. In Enneagram language, I am a type four. I've had a wing five that's gotten me this far through a doctoral program. I like ideas, but as I have sunk into contemplative spirituality and spiritual direction, I have found that I've swung over to my three wing, which is that entrepreneurial apostolic movement and my enthusiasm in sharing a bit more of myself, my enthusiasm in sharing the Invitation podcast and creating creative resources like the School of Prayer is the delight to reach out through the internet, throughout my local community here to represent this for the church, that there is a space where we can go delightfully and wondrously deeper into ourselves to experience and discover more and more and more and more of Jesus. So over the summer, as I struggled with my own history of depression as it resurfaced in these very difficult months, I didn't know if the School of Prayer would come off. I didn't know how not to offer it. So as I put the word out there, I've been delighted to find a very strong and sincere response. We just launched the Holland, Michigan cohort this past Saturday and followed it up promptly with a Monday night session here in our retreat production space. And we also have interest from people to meet east of Holland. We'll be starting another cohort in Granville, hopefully based at Mars Hill Church. And then another cohort will be online. We're calling a distance learning cohort. Those other two will begin in October. So if you happen to still be interested in this eight-month journey, which is a study and a practice of a rule of life, reach out to me. It's josh at invitationpodcast.org. This is, in many ways, an awful time to add more obligations, more heaviness, more things to fail at. Those that have been signing up for the School of Prayer are saying that the world and my life is in so much flux, even some chaos, that the School of Prayer looks like a space that could provide some community and structure so that I can begin to negotiate how to be more intentional about giving myself to God. The spiritual impulse here is not that we have to fast. It's not that we have to read more books or practice daily prayers. It's not that we have to do that in order to please God. 
it's that we get to do these things, that our sacrifice is a response to God's love. This obedience is a pouring out of my time and my energy, not to earn more of God's favor, but to instead respond to God's love. And this is the same spirit that we return to a sunlit absence. So we return to our posture of waiting, a practice of the Jesus prayer. So wherever you are and whatever you're up to, I invite you to calm yourself, to find your attention, the eyes and ears of your heart, joining an awareness of yourself with your awareness of God. That as I am more and more familiar with my vessel, my own eyes, my own ears, my mind, my heart, my body, the depths of my soul, I am then more capable of placing my attention in a posture that can be more actively and intently aware of God's presence. So we breathe in Jesus and out Jesus. In each breath, we follow the meaning, the substance, the truth of his name with our breath breathing in and out. We welcome you, presence of the living God. It's not that you have not already been with us. It's that we have not welcomed you into our awareness so that we can cooperate with you. Breathing in Jesus and out Jesus. Amen. We're diving in here to chapter 5, which is sifted by boredom. I had initially thought this was a perfect chapter for the tedium of quarantine. Externally, we have no reason to really be bored right now. There's much going on in our world, in our families, if we're getting back into school rhythms. There's much external things to pay attention to. We're not dealing necessarily with that kind of hour-by-hour preoccupation. We're dealing with that inner awareness. It's that boredom that causes us to want to check our email or the news Honestly, we eat largely, we snack at least throughout the day because we're bored. 
And we also stay up later than we should because the boredom of the day continues to yawn into the wee hours. I've been bored all day long. I've not been interested or entertained enough. So I'm just going to cram a little more in. And conversely, we'll also explore the idea that sometimes we practice boredom by staying preoccupied. That busyness, unnecessary busyness, is also a form of responding to boredom. What do I do with myself? Well, I must throw myself into that false sense of self-importance by being over-busy. So chapter 5, Sifted by Boredom, he begins with Psalm 143, verses 6 through 8. Like thirsty ground, I yearn for you. Quick, Yahweh, answer me before my spirit fails. In Psalm 63, 2, My body pines for you like a dry, weary land without water. The abbess of Crewe apparently found prayer boring. Muriel Sparks' novel, The Abbess of Crewe, has as its main character a larger-than-life monastic superior with not only expensive tastes, but also a curious idiosyncrasy with respect to her prayer. While gathered together with the entire community for the regular praying of the Psalms in Latin, the abbess instead recites to herself lines of English poetry. Indeed, there is much nourishment provided by poetry. Nevertheless, the question arises, what was going on within the abbess of Crewe that the Psalms ceased to provide her the spiritual nourishment she presumably once enjoyed? Was the daily round of prayer becoming boring? Muriel Spark does not pursue this question in her delightful novel of political intrigue and vote-rigging, but the question nevertheless highlights something of great importance on the spiritual path. What do we do when a way of praying that has once been satisfying, nourishing, and fervent is now experienced as dry, boring, futile, and paralytically unsatisfying? This is no easy matter. No matter what our walk in life, if prayer is the integrating component of our life, this can hit rather hard and make us think we have lost our prayer life or even our way of life. Whatever the case may be, there are important times in the life of prayer when all the juice seems to run out, our prayer life seems to have evaporated. This often sets us searching for some other form of prayer that will provide more juice a greater buzz, anything to help keep this transitional boredom at bay. Many, indeed very many, stop praying altogether when met by this brick wall of boredom. The abbess of Crewe simply coped as best she could, but if her prayer life, or anybody's for that matter, was going to deepen, becoming bored with forms of prayer that involve a lot of words and mental effort, or even dogged by a sense of prayer's biting futility, is a commonly occurring sign that prayer is deepening by means of a sort of creative disintegration. 
like compost, prayer breaks down into fertile matter for the life around it. Prayer matures by a process of breaking down rather than by acquisition and spiritual prowess. This simplification can for a time, perhaps quite some time, feel as though we're going backward, or worse, going no place at all. Why should this happen? Why should boredom beset prayer? What's wrong with a buzzing, caffeinated fervor day in and day out? The reason for this aridity is not that prayer is suddenly dying. Aridity sets in for more or less lengthy and difficult periods when our prayer life is deepening and the nature and dynamic of prayer is beginning to change. Our five senses, along with a discursive or thinking mind, deal with objects, whether conceptual or physical objects, and are predisposed to and preoccupied with feeling, thinking, perceiving, language, stimulation, and feedback. But God is not an object in the way these things are objects. God cannot be grasped the way other things are grasped by our normal ways of knowing and perceiving. For us to move deeply into God's deep movement in us, quote, whose margins are God's margins, end quote, as R.S. Thomas puts it, the senses must learn to abide in stillness. But because we are accustomed to so much stimulation, our initial encounters with deeper levels of stillness tend to register as boredom or deprivation of something that we think should be there. With time and perseverance, this stillness will register differently, not as boredom, but as a free-flowing vastness and liberating peace that has no opposite, and so embraces all opposites, both boredom and zeal. In this silent land, we are taught gradually to, quote, walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7. In his Confessions, St. Augustine comments on the significance of Christ's resurrection and ascension. Christ, quote, has gone from our sight so that we should return to our heart, Isaiah 46, 8, and find him there, end quote. The heart, a term that refers not to our thoughts and feelings, but to our innermost depths that ground thought and feeling, our knowing center, is the place of divine encounter. Just because the risen Christ is not accessible to the senses in the way the historical Jesus was, this does not simply absence, but draws us to a presence that is deeper than our discursive and imagining powers can perceive, but in which the heart delights. For here, Augustine insists, quote, God speaks in the great silence of the heart, end quote when boredom besets prayer that is built on firm foundations of love of God and neighbor, boredom is a sign that the senses are being led from trying to grasp God as an object to a deep stillness that receives rather than grasps. Several things come to the fore as prayer deepens. Prayer becomes less and less something that we do and think about, and more a matter of just being the phrase starts to make practical sense. As the anonymous author of the book of Privy Counseling says, quote, not what you are, but that you are, end quote. 
At the same time, the role the discursive or thinking mind plays begins to change. We're being drawn more deeply into relationship with what our senses cannot grasp any more than a sponge can grasp the ocean, even though its entire membrane is saturated with ocean and seems to be as much ocean as membrane. As we move further into the depths, other aspects of mind begin to awaken what ancient theology calls the flower of the mind, the apex of the mind, the scintilla, or spark of the soul. The surface aspects of mind play a less dominant role and remain ever focused on what prayer feels like, asking such things as, quote, Am I praying well? Am I doing this right? End quote. Boredom serves both to signal and to facilitate this transition, this changing of the guard. Prayer is not content to stay up in the branches of our minds with all the other things we think about. It works its way down through the branches and trunk into our roots where it is one with the ground of all, the capital G, ground of all. We gradually and at times with reluctance, learn to be a servant of this process, not so much by letting go of thoughts, which often won't let go of us, but by releasing more deeply into our practice. But thoughts, too, point to, emerge from, and manifest this ground. Again, capital G. Our very being doesn't have to pray. We are already prayer. And this truly is a conception of transformation that Father Laird is engaging within the definitely Roman Catholic tradition, but surprisingly he is a wonderful interpreter of Eastern Orthodox spirituality by way of the Philokalia. And it was first through Callistos where the current translator of the fifth volume of the Philokalia into English, who I heard teach this idea that it's not that we practice prayer or that we have prayer lives, but that we become prayer. From the sayings of the Desert Fathers, Abba Lot went to Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can say my little office, I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched out his hands toward heaven. His fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, If you will, you can become all flame. And here is a particularly Eastern Orthodox spiritual theology that Father Laird is attempting to remind us of. If you recall, he said that we must put aside in our pursuit of prayer the delusion of being separate from God the especially reformed idea of total depravity and my original sin. What we're attempting here is the possibility 
that we can hold Romans 3 and Psalm 51 in tension with Psalm 139, that indeed there are none righteous, no, not even one. And in Psalm 51, indeed I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. In tension with Psalm 139, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that I was wonderfully made, knit together in my mother's womb, and that even if I'm in the depths of the darkness of Sheol, God's presence is there. His hand will guide me. So conceptually, I am not thinking of transformation in a linear sense that someday I will reach a transformed self that is out there before me, but instead in prayer, I am discovering the transformation that is already here in me. I'm discovering that prayer is in me, that the deepest parts of myself is a place that has and is and always will be in communion with God. So for the Eastern Fathers, prayer is a discipline of discovering and joining in with the Holy Spirit who is ceaselessly interceding already in my being. Moving over to page 97, Father Laird continues, St. John of the Cross sees this inability to pray as a sign of growth. After we, quote, have been fed somewhat and have become in a certain fashion accustomed to spiritual things and acquired some fortitude and constancy, God begins to wean the soul, as they say, and place it in a state of contemplation, end quote. As John sees it, the inability to pray as we previously did is a natural response to the nourishment prayer is providing. A second sign that prayer is developing is that not only are we unable to pray in the discursive manner we once did, but we feel disinclined to pray in the way we once did. We become aware, he says, quote, of a disinclination to fix the imagination or sense faculties on other particular objects, exterior or interior, end quote. John of the Cross is not suggesting that just because we are having a bad prayer day and don't feel like praying, that this is somehow a sign of growth. He is presuming that our prayer, like Margaret's, is marked by disinclination and consistency. This disinclination to pray is not laziness, but something that befalls consistent, dedicated prayer as a sign of maturing simplification. The third sign, and the, quote, surest, according to John, is, quote, is that the person likes to remain alone in loving awareness of God, end quote, instead of practicing the devotions and praying with words that previously characterized prayer. The attraction to solitude and movement into solitude is the outstanding feature of Jesus' own prayer life. In the Gospels, Jesus is routinely going off to some deserted place in order to commune with the Father. Luke 5.13 
This solitude is quite the opposite of isolation. In fact, it has no more to do with wanting to be alone than the desire to climb to the top of the mountain to being tired of the plains. People head for the mountains not out of rejection of the plains, but because of the attraction of the mountains themselves. Moving over to the bottom of 99, Father Laird continues with his reflections about Margaret. Father Laird is continuing his observations about Margaret, a woman who went through this aridity and discovered contemplation. He says, She actually preferred simply to sit alone in silent prayer, lovingly attentive to God, whose obscurity was slowly becoming the vehicle of an intimate presence too near to be felt. Quote, Prayer has become a simple resting in a presence I cannot feel yet somehow know. I don't feel I've made any progress in prayer. It's more like everything about my prayer life has been taken away, and this resting in God is the only thing left. I'm not sure why I call it resting in God, but those words seem to fit. It usually feels as though I'm wasting my time. End quote. Margaret has never so much as heard of St. John of the Cross, and frankly, there would be a lot about him that she wouldn't like. Yet she is nearly paraphrasing him. He says it is important for, quote, the soul to remain in rest and quietude, even though it may seem obvious to them that they are doing nothing and wasting time. And even though they think this disinclination to think about anything is due to their laxity, through patience and perseverance in prayer, they will be doing a great deal without activity on their part. End quote. He is consistent in his advice to let go of, quote, the impediment and fatigue of ideas and thoughts and care not about thinking and discursive meditation, end quote. St. John of the Cross knows how strong the tendency may be to force oneself back into those ways of praying that involve a lot of mental activity, even though we now find this heavy baggage to carry. This pressure can also be imposed on us by people who know little about the simplifying dynamics of contemplation and tell us to stay with a former way of praying, which has now become too burdensome, in spite of our longing, however obscure, simply to be silent. St. John of the Cross says this, quote, is like hammering the horseshoe instead of the nail, end quote. This is an effective simile for it expresses how a single act produces a twofold error. Quote, on the one hand, they do harm, and on the other hand, they receive no profit. End quote. When the prayerful narratives that go on in our heads first begin to unfold into silence, it will register as boredom to that aspect of our minds that talks and talks and talks. This was Margaret's case her boredom with her heady, discursive way of praying, her subsequent disinclination and inability to pray in her former manner, took her by the hand and led her by means of loss and poverty to simply being.
I'd like to point out that Father Laird is mapping out for us some kinds of textbook progressions from an active discursive prayer into a wordless stillness. However, in the next section, as we'll continue in the next episode, he's also acknowledging that there are divergent ways for each of us in our unique paths to come to this practice. For example, in my journey towards contemplation personally, I had been pretentious about the banality and the smallness of petitionary prayer or intercession. As I found my way into the depths of contemplation, I was condescending to that former praying self, characterizing those small prayers as the prayers of grandmas or of youth groups. However, during one season, as I was moving deeper into my prayer, the Spirit asked me if I actually believed in God's ability to practically intervene in my life. So ironically, in order for me to more sincerely and more intentionally offer intercessory and petitionary prayers to ask God to actively be involved in my life, I needed to first go into some deeper spaces of trust in contemplation. So in actual practice, our development is not always linear in that kind of progression of going in one direction. It's usually circuitous. It's usually going deeper into God so that I can learn other practical things. And honestly, even as I long to grow in my capacity for contemplation, I also acknowledge that I have barely begun to understand what intercessory prayer truly is. So to put this in another vocabulary, we can think of the three stages that Origen initially laid out in the third century. The ascent to God, said Origen, was from the purgative to the illuminative and then the unitive. As I die to myself, I am then more empty and purified and ready to put on the mind of Christ and to think through the truth and the wisdom of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And in that, then, I am opening myself up to this height of spiritual marriage, of union with God, of more deeply participating. Those are three progressions that might seem on the surface in earthly terms linear. However, again, as I was saying, the true experience for each of us will be nonlinear, not quite so static that I am now done with purgation. I'm ready to be eliminated and now I'm ready to be in union. It's more that I have experienced and tasted some of the deep end of intimacy with God in my deeper being that then inspires me to be more obedient and practiced, faithful in my dying to self, in my practical daily obedience. And that in turn alivens my, the mind of my heart, the heart and the mind to conceive and grasp and to walk in light and truth. 
So here in this chapter 5 is another practical example that progression towards God and prayer does not look like any other kind of progression we have on this earth that often moving forward feels like we're going backwards. That I have been faithful and consistent for a season and then my prayer becomes obscured and more difficult because the Holy Spirit is providing me with new opportunities to taste and see, to open myself, to rest in God's presence. This is the school of the Holy Spirit. So let's stop talking about prayer. Let's move from the ideas of prayer and open ourselves to conclude with some prayer. So I invite you to take a posture of rest. Take off the discursive mind that needs to figure it out and open yourself to a receiving mind, a receiving heart, an open receiving body. This is why breath is especially helpful. As I breathe in, I'm opening myself, breathing in Jesus, and then I'm resting and releasing as I breathe out Jesus. Again, as I breathe in, I'm opening, I'm receiving. And as I breathe out, Jesus, I'm resting, I'm trusting, I'm surrendering. This receptive posture is that gentleness, the quietness. I'm not striving here, but I'm not also falling asleep. There's an eagerness and a willingness. But it's not greedy. It's not manipulative. Breathing in Jesus. Breathing out. Amen. So I had begun this engagement with a sunlit absence at the beginning of quarantine. First of all, as a discipline for myself when I am not able to get into the prison or to meet with directees face-to-face what is one discipline that I could stay tethered to that would keep me open and serving. So, in many ways, this journey has been selfish for me because I've needed something to give myself to. And of course, the hope is that this has been serving you and has been able to 
provide fruit in your life and in your prayer. And then, of course, you'll have noticed that I have not been content just to read the text, but to also offer some guided prayers and some accompanying commentary to help you connect the dots. So this is outlasted the summer practice, and here we are in the fall. So what that means is that I do absolutely intend to finish this book with you, to offer this resource online. However, as we move towards November 3, I do intend to offer some other resources that will allow us to connect the dots between questions of justice, fighting racism, being clear-minded as we go to the voting booth. My interest here is not to shift your political allegiances, but to instead offer a vocabulary and a space where we can bring our politics and our prayer together. It's my conviction that much of the strife and the division we have in the church right now is due to an uncareful and a less than thorough attempt at bringing discipleship, following Jesus, into the earthly practice of politics. What are politics? Polis, the root word there, means city. And the idea is how do we then cooperate in the city, in the context of people. And this cuts to the core of the gospel, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I have a great conversation with the author and cultural critic David Dark, where we touch on things political. I also have a kind of audio montage with a friend of mine named Kurt Toflin, who began Shakespeare Behind Bars, the practice that I have of contemplative prayer in the prison is an offshoot from the former leader who was involved in Shakespeare Behind Bars with Kurt. And what I have is some audio of me writing to the prison with him and talking about Shakespeare and then writing back. And I'm going to offer some excerpts of that. Kurt is a fiercely political being, and you might not agree with all the things he has to say, but my hope is that he might interject into your consciousness, your ideas, a way of thinking about incarceration and our political circumstances with some more teeth, some more grit, so that you can tangibly bring this into your own discernment and worship and practice of the life of Christ. And if the invitation has been especially fruitful for you in your life, your ministry, in your service, in your prayer, then I would like to invite you to become a partner in supporting the invitation, first of all, by helping me get the word out about the invitation. Find a friend, a church group, a pastor to share the invitation podcast with. I also suggest this time that reviews on iTunes also can help get the word out. People do pay attention to those reviews and might be attracted by your testimony of what the invitation has done in helping you in your God awareness. I also invite you to pray for the Invitation Podcast. Pray for me, for creativity, 
and for flourishing. Pray for the School of Prayer and the roughly 24, 25 people who have begun this eight-month journey. And of course, finally, your financial support is greatly appreciated as well. I have been delighted to see a few more people join up for a monthly donation that you can set up the donations page at invitationpodcast.org. Of course, any financial amount is encouraging. And don't be a stranger. I love hearing from you personally. Don't be shy. I've received some great feedback and emails in the last few months as well. And as always, I want to conclude by saying thank you. Thank you for trusting this space Thank you for joining into this journey with me. It is an honor and a true delight to serve you. So until next time, be blessed. Amen. Amen.